Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 2. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? So for y'all that don't know me, my name is Matthew Pinnell. Uh, first thing I like to do is, you know, introduce a little, add a little something else for y'all to know me personally. Last time when I was up here, I told y'all about my love for the Atlanta Braves. This time, I want to share with y'all about my love for something that I loved growing up, and that was, that was science. So when I was little, I used to want to be a veterinarian. I've always loved science, especially when it comes to animals and nature, and, and, and I, just, I just love it. So during my time at UNCW, I took a class on, on marine biology. And I had a chance during this class to do a, a presentation on, on just a fascinating animal. And I, I want to share y'all with y'all just a little short video to, to take a look at this animal right now. This is the mimic octopus, a master of disguise. In its natural state, the mimic octopus is a light beige color. And like most octopi, can change its skin pigment to blend in with its surroundings. But the Mimic Octopus takes things to another level altogether. Found in Indonesia and in the Great Barrier Reef, it's an octopus that is so intelligent that when it feels threatened, it can fool possible predators into thinking that it is in fact another, more deadly species. It does this by changing its colour, shape, and perhaps most interestingly, the way it moves and behaves. It's reputed to be able to impersonate 15 other kinds of sea creature, the most notable being the poisonous flatfish, deadly sea snakes, and the highly venomous lionfish. It's thought that even though these impersonations aren't flawless, they can give the crafty octopus enough time to escape before the predator realizes it's been duped. The Mimic Octopus was discovered relatively recently in 1998, possibly because up until then it had done such a good job of disguising itself. Man, holy cow, how amazing is that animal? Like, like that's the animal the chameleon wishes it could be, right? Like, like not only can he change colors, like he can impersonate other animals. That, that, is, that is crazy. So I know you're probably thinking, like, but what does this animal have to do with today or anything, right? What does this animal have to do with the Bible or me or you or anything else, right? What, what does it have to do? So when I was thinking about this mimic octopus, I was thinking about how amazing it is that they can conform their bodies and look like so many different types of marine life and so many different colors. So the question that immediately came to my mind when I was wrestling with it, with what it, what it could mean for me is, you know, why? Why does it do this? And the answer is obvious, right? It, it's for its own protection. I mean, duh, we can all see that, right? But let's be honest with ourselves. In our own lives, the reason that we choose to conform to the world a lot of times is for that very same reason. It's to protect ourselves. Because honestly, blending in or conforming with this world instead of standing out in it is a way in which we protect ourselves, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to just go along with the crowd, even if the crowd's wrong, than it is for us to stand up as a minority for something that is right and face ridicule and persecution. 
So the big idea for today is that the world, the world has certain patterns to it that do, do not lead to a full life. These patterns include things like greed, anger, violence, jealousy, materialism, and dishonesty, just to name a few of those. But Paul instructs us in the book of Romans to no longer conform or blend in with the world, but instead we are to live our lives as transformed people. Transformation does not happen by accident, though. It is an intentional way of daily living. Transformation is something that touches every single aspect of our lives at all times. It is not the idea of faking it till we make it. It is actually being made new by God, by the renewing of our minds, by putting off our old selves, literally taking our old selves, stripping them away, and throwing them in the trash can. Paul clearly says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. It has been thrown away. Look, what has new has come. Everybody pray with me now. Father God, just uh, thank you for this time. Um, I pray for every single person in here, Father. I pray that we would just live as transformed people. I pray that we would let the life and the word of Jesus echo into our lives so that each and every day we're transformed more into his likeness and less like our own likeness, likeness Father. I pray that your spirit will be over this place right now, Father that you would just lead and guide my words and not my will, but your will be done, Father. Amen. So let me tell you all a story of someone who wasn't afraid of standing out. He stood out because he never shrunk away from standing up for what is right. His name is Polycarp. Raise your hand in here if you've ever heard of Polycarp. Anybody ever heard of Polycarp? So just a little background for you, those of you who don't know. Polycarp was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. And he was one of the first bishops of the church in Smyrna, most likely ordained by John himself. And if Smyrna sounds familiar to you, it should, because Smyrna is one of the seven churches from the book of Revelation in which John wrote to. And man, I tell you, the story of Polycarp, I tell it every chance I get because his story and his testimony and the way he stands out is so powerful, especially the way his story ends. You see, Polycarp was originally arrested along with many other Christians because he refused to renounce Christianity and proclaim Caesar as king. When he was brought before the Roman authorities, they pleaded with him for him to spare his life, and the only thing he had to do was just proclaim that Caesar was Lord and not Jesus. They said things to him like, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheist. How ridiculous does that sound, right? They're sitting here telling Polycarp to look at his Christian brothers and sisters and say, Down with the atheists, because they consider the Christians atheists because they didn't believe in their Roman gods. So, how crazy does that sound? So, guess what Polycarp does? He looks out at the Roman crowd and waves his hand and goes, Down with the atheists. Swear, urged the Roman authorities, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp looks at them and says, 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, they said to him. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. Think about that. I'm going to repeat that again. He said to them, it is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good and to turn to what is evil. After this, his hands were bound, and he was set on fire and killed as a martyr for standing up for Jesus as the true king. What a powerful testimony. So today, we are beginning a brand new sermon series all about that same concept, standing out. The mimic octopus is the master of disguise. It doesn't matter what environment it's placed in. It will change its color and appearance to fit in. Remember, though, that one of the fundamental aspects of us for being a Christian is that we are easily identifiable when placed against the backdrop of this world. We naturally should stand out, just like Polycarp in my story earlier. However, for us, the truth is that for many of us, we would rather blend in with the crowd than stand out in it. The ironic thing about crowds, though, is that if history teaches us anything— is that the majority is often wrong. As, as author Eugene Peterson puts it, crowds lie. The more people, the less truth. Crowds are often more foolish than they are wise. Today, we are going to look at a very clear statement from the Bible regarding this topic of ours. If you have a Bible with you, Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. I wanted to circle back around and read that second verse of this chapter one more time. So in Romans 12, 2, Paul says it very simply. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In this sentence, Paul shows us the contrast we are going to pack today, unpack today. Fitting in versus standing out. First, though, as you saw in the scripture reference, it talks about the world. So let's define what the world is. So John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, defines the world as this. The world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. And I'm going to read that one more time because I know know that's a lot to unpack. So I'm going to read it one more time for you. The world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. To say it more plainly, what he's saying is, it's Adam and Eve, and they're standing in the garden where they are given this choice of eating from the tree of life and trusting in God's wisdom over here, or eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and seizing autonomy for themselves so that they could redefine what was good and what was evil in their own eyes. I mean, just look after the choice they make, how the story spirals out of control. We have the first human murder in the Bible with Cain murdering his brother Abel, 
followed by Cain being sent away where he builds a city and a civilization full of violence and oppression. But it wasn't just Cain's family, though, that suffered from the decision of redefining good and evil. Just read the rest of the book of Genesis. It is full of story after story after story of people choosing to do things on their own terms. Look, standing up and doing the right thing is hard. It is often painful and oftentimes comes with a cost. Fitting in is so much easier. Trust me, I I know, it, it is easier. Many of us can remember how important it was or still is to fit in in the high school years. It can feel like the only way to maintain a good number of friendships is by conforming your personality and habits to those around you who appear to have it all together. The upside to this is that if you conform and fit in, you can begin to form a sense of community, right? You may never have experienced before. But let me tell you, the downside is that what you'll be experiencing, it's not real. It's a false community. The only reason you were accepted was due to the person you were pretending to be. Once others discovered who you really are, they may leave, they may stay, but either way, the whole process can be traumatizing. The Bible has a word for this, and it's a Greek word. The word is hypocrites. Can y'all say that with me? Hypocrites. And can y'all, can y'all guess what English word we get from that Greek word? Hypocrite. You got it. It's the idea of an actor or a stage performer, someone who wears a mask and performs in a play as one person and then removes that mask and is someone completely different. But let me say this, though, because this is extremely important. Hypocrites are not people who just say one thing and do another. They are people who say and do one thing and are completely different on the inside than what they are portraying on the outside in both their words and their actions. As Christians, though, we are called to be like Jesus, to think like Jesus does, and to treat other people like Jesus. And because of that, we are called to interact with this world like Jesus. If we say that we are Christians and continue living like everyone else, we are hypocritical. You may have entire friend groups that know nothing of your faith or who you are because of Jesus. But just like we experienced in high school or other places, these are false communities who only like us for who we are pretending to be. This way of living, though, is schizophrenic. It's no different than thinking that in certain jobs and professions, it's okay to live in a worldly manner as long as we look like Jesus in our personal lives. Let me tell you, it's either all or it's nothing. We cannot serve two masters. Jesus makes that plain in his Sermon on the Mount. You will either hate one and love the other, There is no such thing as dual citizenship when it comes to the kingdom of God. Listen, God is calling us as followers of Jesus to stand out at all times rather than to fit in. It's not an easy process, but it is an important one. So here is a list of some of the questions we'll be tackling throughout this new series we're starting. What does conforming look like? What are the patterns we as humans are tempted to conform to? What does true transformation look like in our lives by Jesus' definition? Then once we know what transformation looks like, 
What is the purpose behind it? So let's start with that first one. What does conforming look like? We first have to get a grip on what conforming actually looks like in our world. The word conform means to assume a similar outward form or expression by following the same patterns. So with that definition in mind, let's talk about how we can confront our conforming. I wonder how many of us in here right now have tried to model our behavior after someone we looked up to or admired. As we grow up, it's almost like we try on, like, like the word hypocrite we said earlier, where it's like a screen actor trying on a, uh, you know, someone in a play trying on a mask. It's like we try on others' characteristics to see what fits us. But what happens, though, when those patterns and behaviors grow up with you and they become your, your habits and characteristics? What if you don't like them? What if you don't like who you've become? So there must be confrontation. And this confrontation can obviously happen in a multitude of different ways, both externally and internally. As believers, we can expect that we will, at different times in our lives, be confronted with the truth of God. So if you have your Bibles with me once again, turn with me to John chapter 4. And we're going to look and see firsthand what this kind of divine confrontation might look like. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestor was worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one you were speaking to, I am he. So in John chapter 4, Jesus has an encounter with a woman from Samaria at a well. You see, in this, in this culture, the Jews, and remember, Jesus was a Jew, did not associate with Samaritans. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews. And this goes all the way back to the Assyrian exile found in the Old Testament when some of the Jews stayed behind and intermarried with the Assyrians. And the Jews did not com consider the Samaritans full Jew because they felt like because of them intermarrying with the Assyrians that they had poisoned their bloodline. And because of this, Jews would do everything in their power to avoid interactions with them. In fact, most Jews would not even travel through Samaria during their treks to Jerusalem for their festivals and would instead take a longer route, even crossing over the Jordan River numerous times just to avoid Samaria and any contact with the Samaritans. So I have a map for y'all to look at, and this would have been during the time of uh, uh, Jesus' time. So if you look, so Jerusalem was way down here in the south, and you see some of the Jews who would have to travel down to Jerusalem for the festivals would have to travel all the way from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. And you see what's right in the way, right? It's Samaria. Imagine hating someone so much that you would literally cross over, cross over the Jordan River here, go through the Decapolis and Perea, and then cross back over the Jordan into Judea just, just to, so you wouldn't have to travel through Samaria. How crazy is that? Like, you have to really, really hate someone to, to go through all that extra work. However, though, Jesus, he doesn't care about social norms and taboos of that day. What Jesus is interested in is the redemption of all humankind. So he goes to meet this woman as she comes to draw water around noon that day. So usually all the women would come to draw water much later in the day. But this woman in this story was so ashamed of her lifestyle that she wanted to avoid encounters with anyone. Nevertheless, Jesus meets her and offers her living water. He makes her aware and confronts her current lifestyle and tells her that what she has now will never truly fulfill her. He says in verse 18, The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. Jesus calls out the way she is living in order to offer her the better way of life found only in himself, the Christ. You see, the path to deep transformation has to begin with confronting the negative worldly patterns in our lives. For the woman at the well, it happened in an actual encounter and conversation with Jesus who drew her attention to the destructive patterns in her life. Maybe Jesus today is trying to call out things in your life that do not bring value to his kingdom. Maybe you have been following the patterns of those around you because it's, it's just easier for us to fit in rather than stand out. Maybe you know you can keep friendships if you just fit in and follow others' lead. But Jesus, he's offering you something different. Jesus is offering you a better way of life right here, right now. 
Just like his encounter with the woman at the well, he is offering you living water and abundant life. So my question to you is, what are you going to do with this invitation? Or to put it in another way, do you want to get well? So we're going to read another story together. So you can turn with me now to John chapter 5. So John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, for I'm trying to get in. Someone else goes in ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. So in this story, Jesus meets a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. How crazy is that? And he's lying at this pool of Bethesda. Actually, in order to get to this particular man, it appears Jesus must have passed by many others who were also sick and handicapped. So what was so special about this one man? Why didn't Jesus just heal everyone in the pool that day? So I'm not sure I know all the answers to the questions this passage brings up. But I know it was time for this man to confront his conforming. Jesus literally confronts him there at the pool. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he had spent a long time in this condition, he asked him, do you want to get well? What, what Jesus was looking at was a man who had completely conformed to his circumstance. This is evidence in his reply to Jesus when he says, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm on my way, someone else goes down before me. The handicapped man was discouraged, obviously. He could not see a pathway to his healing. Yes, he wanted to be well, but when confronted with Jesus' simple question, he was only able to respond with the reality that he believed he occupied. He could only see the obstacles that were in front of him. And I would argue that his condition, his suffering, his discouragement, had conformed his thinking to a mindset of hopelessness. Little did he know, though, while he was staring at the pool of water in front of him, the living waters of Jesus were staring back at him, looking to bring healing and wholeness into his life on that very day. So this story is an example and makes you honestly wonder how many times a similar thing has happened in our own lives. How many times have we been staring at the thing we've been conformed to and completely missed the invitation of Jesus? The same question Jesus asked 2,000 years ago is still relevant today. Do you want to get well? Or said another way, do you want to be transformed by the power of God and his word and his life? Listen, it's by no means an easy task. I don't want to mislead any of you here today. Transformation may be painful at times. It's definitely going to be a lot of hard work. 
in your life, you may have to come confront some really, really uncomfortable traditions and beliefs in your life. You may have to confront and let go or make amends with some of the things from your past. So I'll ask you again, do you want to get well? Do you want to have your life transformed? And if you do, how do we transform? The words of Jesus challenged and confronted the man at the pool of Bethesda, just like the words of Jesus continue to challenge and confront us right here, right now, today. So much of the messaging you hear in life is inviting you to conform to a worldly image that falls short of the glory of God. The world tells us things like, buy a nicer car, buy a nicer home, you deserve better, you deserve more, better, more, bigger. It's all about how you feel, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it is exhausting trying to keep up with the Joneses or the Kardashians or whoever else you might want to throw in the conversation this day and age. I mean, I can't even keep up with who I'm supposed to be keeping up with anymore. The messaging of the Bible, however, invites you into the transformative power of God. The world conforms, but the word and life of Jesus transforms. If you are here today and you're trying to figure out why, why the negative pattern in your life still seems to be so present, maybe it has a correlation to the time you spend with God and his word. The world around us will gladly give us things to fill our time. And before we know it, we have not spent any time with God. I believe that the more time we spend with God, the more we will begin to look like Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 12 too, and I'm going to read it again because it is so important. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it is that renewing of your mind that will lead to the next part. It's the renewing of your mind that once your mind is renewed, you will know 100% and be able to test and approve what God's will is in your life. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Our minds are the most powerful supercomputers in the world, and they are hardwired to store and recall all the information you take in throughout a lifetime. So maybe for us, maybe it's time for a bit of rewiring regarding the filling of our mind. We are in need of spiritual and mental renewal. Let me tell you from personal experience that this book, this book right here, this book is the source of what you're seeking. Any time, any place, God is ready to meet you right where you are to take you where he wants you to be. So do you want to be healed? Do you want the transformative power of God in your life? Do you want the abundant life that Jesus refers to in John 10, 10, when he says that I, I, Jesus, will give you life, and I will give you life to the full? So I'll conclude today with this old Cherokee saying, which rings true for all people of all time. So there was this old Cherokee who told his grandson, my son, there is a battle between two wolves inside of us all. One of those wolves inside of us, that wolf is evil. That wolf is anger. That wolf is jealousy. That wolf is greed. That wolf is resentment, inferiority, lies, ego, and violence. But the other wolf, my son, the other is good. 
It is joy. It is peace. It is love. It is hope. It is humility. It is kindness. It is empathy. And it is truth. So the boy sat there and he thought for a minute. And then he asked his grandfather, Grandfather, which wolf wins? The old man looked at his grandson and quietly replied, The one that you feed. Which wolf are you feeding today? Are you feeding the wolf that stands for worldly things? Are you feeding the wolf of anger and pride and jealousy and violence and greed? Or are you feeding the wolf of transformation through the word of God? Are you feeding the wolf that seeks to cultivate communities and friendships centered on the words and actions of Jesus Christ? So I ask you again, which wolf will you feed? So listen, as my friends come out here and, and they're getting ready to go into this last song, um, you know, I, I'm reminded about, about a quote from, from my mentor, Shane Wood. I, I was listening to him speak, and he was speaking on the same thing, and he was speaking on transformation, and, and he was thinking about, you know, the life of Christ and what transformation looks like, and he was talking about his ministry and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And he said, but you know what? Jesus couldn't have a resurrection without the crucifixion. I think some of us need that in our life today. What worldly things do you need to crucify today so that you can truly begin living that transformed life? I invite you to come down and lay them at the foot of the cross and let your transformation begin today. Just stop. Stop holding on to the world and be transformed.